We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Week 17 of the NFL season is over, and this is the Big Blue Banter Podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, 24-7 Sports and CBS Interactive. My co-host, Nick Turchin, is here with Cover One. We'll be reviewing the last two games of the NFL season after we took a little break for the holidays, and we're going to dive into Dave Gettleman's press conference, the future of the Giants, early stages of the 2019 offseason, and a couple of those quarterback prospects, both free agents, and NFL rookie draft prospects in the 2019 NFL draft that could intrigue the New York Giants if they do, in fact, decide to move on from Eli Manning. But for now, Nick, let's dive into some key takeaways that you took away from the game tape, the All-22 Coaches film versus the Dallas Cowboys, and anything you might want to throw in from the game tape against the, uh, against the Indianapolis Colts the week before. Yeah, I had a two weeks, basically, of tape to go over here with a little mini break that wasn't really a break, but it was kind of a break for uh, the big blue side of things. Um, yeah, no, I think it was an interesting kind of different two weeks. Uh, the most recent game, <laughs> there was, it was better than I realized offensively, and it was much, much worse than I realized defensively. And I think that was the biggest thing, actually, that stands out. The first thing that comes to my mind is that the defensive side – without the leaders, without guys making calls and helping guys get into position. The secondary was very disorganized um, in the uh, in the Dallas game. And so, you know, there's not be, there's not that much to take away from that, obviously, because not many of those guys, honestly, will be on the team. But I think it's talks about the leadership. And when you don't, when you have a complex system like Betchers, when I say system or complex play calling like Betchers on the defensive side, when guys aren't getting in the right spots, it can kind of get ugly pretty fast. And uh, so that was kind of my biggest defensive takeaway for by far in the last two weeks. You know what, Nick? I was actually a little surprised when I ran back the tape on both these games, and I've actually found a new meaning to 
to what I think is actually some improvement by the Giants offense, Nick. I really do believe that we're seeing a quarterback who's more comfortable in the scheme over the last, I don't know, you know, every game with the exception of the players and Titans. And you've done a great job, Nick, of breaking down why Manning struggled against those specific defensive schemes and defensive coordinators. But, you know, when he's not facing those kinds of coordinators and schemes, I really saw serious improvement. You look at the Dallas Cowboys game from earlier in the season versus the Dallas Cowboys game from this part of the season. You're seeing a lot of, you pointed out, a couple smash route, vertical routes. He took a shot on Manning uh, to Latimer that he connected with on, in the Dallas game against Indianapolis. They were taking advantage of the inter, uh, of the quick breaking, uh, I guess the intermediate breaking in routes, quick in routes with Sterling Shepard. They're finding ways to use Evan Ingram that, quite frankly, we hope we would see week one, but it's good to see nonetheless now he's finally healthy. So to me, there was some serious progress made uh, by the offense. And in both games, both Indianapolis and Dallas, it was not predicated on success found in the run game because the Giants did not really find, with the exception of a couple splash plays, much success against the Colts or Cowboys run defense. So to me, Nick, that was actually my biggest takeaway. That I actually saw serious improvement. And I'll, I'll say it from the quarterback position as well. I thought Eli Manning in both the last two games was more decisive with getting rid of the football and where he wanted to go with the football and not just checking it down. And he was all season. Yeah. And I think the, what the total embracing of flood concepts in the last three to four weeks definitely is, is a, is a big part of that. And so we're talking about three different guys on three different levels of the secondary. If it's a stretch running across the field, which is kind of what the Giants have run the most. And basically Eli, Eli had some sort of play action, boot action, um, you know, away from the, um, the play action on some sides, in some cases on the same side as the play action. And so, or the run action, I should say. And so, yeah, no, I think that, I think that was part of it because they embraced attacking the flats with Manning's speed, with, with Manning's play speed of just getting the ball quickly to your point. And they did that kind of on first and second down often, um, I think is kind of a way to almost replace to your point again, too, the running game, which was kind of, <laughs> non-existent slash just not consistent really i mean there were some definitely big big plays but yeah no that's a good point and and something where you overall see comfortability i think too on the dallas side of that of the, of the dallas game their coverages were very vanilla which would speak to a little right. bit of the cold side of things so that that's yeah. that definitely that that jives with that with that narrative that if it's if the if the coverage is going to be static eli can attack it yeah and you look at it nick and i mean at least over the second half of the season, Eli Manning did a good job of attacking those static coverages that he saw at times. And I don't think every going into next season, let's say, and if he is the starting quarterback of this football team, I don't think that every defense is going to be able to play him like the Bears and like the Titans did. I don't think every defense has that kind of personnel. Both teams have really good safeties, for example. And I don't think that every defense, you know, operates like that. So it's something to consider. But, you know, I think most of your Oh, at the beginning of the takeaway from the All-22 has to do with the defense. We will get that. But first, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, sorry to jump ahead with that. But that was the first thing in my notes was like glaring. Like, what the hell? But anyway. It was hideous watching that defense. I mean, Dak Prescott threw for 437 yards passing and four touchdowns. Dak Prescott, guys. I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not a Dak Prescott believer at all. <laughs> but we'll get to that at another time. But anyway, Nick, before we dive into – the ugliness on the defensive side of the ball, because we really do need to, because, you know, this team is, we all want to talk about the quarterback and I get it. 
totally understand it. You can't, in my opinion, you really can't win consistently in the NFL without above average play from that position. But if the defense doesn't uh, make some improvement going into this next season, it won't matter who's playing quarterback. Let's be honest. But before we do that, let's dive into a little more of the goods. Um, I really, like I, I just mentioned it before, but, you know, why are we seeing such improved play from Evan Ingram over the last several games? Uh, I think, well, number one, he definitely looks healthier, right? 100%. And so I think that whatever, and I don't have a good grasp of what it was initially that, you know, like, because it seemed like a couple issues and then they lingered, right? And it smells like there was something else going on. But then effectively, you know, when you see that rebound, um, I think in general, uh, there's a there's a couple of things. Number one, his use in the slot is very important. And He's using the slot against off coverage. He can be very deadly because it kind of gets into the theme, which I've written about. We've talked about how he's not, he doesn't win early, but if you give him room, he can get momentum and then he can really hurt you. Um, but with that said, and I showed this on Twitter, there was a couple, a couple of his releases have massively improved this year. So whether or not that was a health related issue or not, um, he's gotten better, a little bit better getting off the ball and getting and winning early. So you saw that on a couple throws. And then in general too, I think, I think he's the type of player where he doesn't need a lot of touches, but he's got to get some level. He, you have to feed him on some level specifically for running the ball, moving the ball, whether that's a reverse or a screen or a swing screen or a, you know, he was running like quick outs really, really well um, against the Cowboys and beat Jeff Heath a couple of times, that type of stuff. I think he just has to be involved, whether or not it's like, it's not some crazy numbers thing, but I think in the first half of games, he needs, he needs that type of uh, charge almost. Yeah, I mean, Nick, you know what I was most excited about was you pointed out earlier in the year, and you were right. He was not winning early in his routes, and now it's starting to look, at least based on, you know, some of the things you broke down on Twitter, and I also saw them myself on All-22, starting to win earlier in routes. Even the game, two or two games before the, the Colts and the um, Cowboys game, which he was obviously featured more, he won early on that red zone route against the Titans when Eli Manning underthrew him. And, I mean, right. we're starting to see a healthier version of him, and they're clear. It's not – Giants fans aren't going to have to wait – until the 2019 season with off-season articles like, here's how the Giants should use Evan Ingram. Here's how they could use them. It's finally time because we're starting to see it finally. We saw it against the Colts. We saw it against the Cowboys. And to me, that's very exciting and very important for this team because they need another dynamic option, in my opinion, in this offense to really take it to the next level, especially if they're going to insert a rookie quarterback or really any other quarterback who has no experience in the offensive scheme because like Dave Gettleman and Pat Shermer said, and I'm on board with them on this, I don't think it's coach speak, it takes some time to get used to a new offensive scheme. Pat Shermer said it takes four to six weeks. Gettleman said it takes six weeks. And you know what? I'm with them on that. So I think it's very important to help ease that, to have playmakers like Ingram who can make plays after the catch. He really, You saw he really didn't need – I mean, he, he made impact on vertical routes, especially against the Colts. But, you know, he doesn't need – he doesn't need to use just his deep uh, straight line speed to make an impact, in my opinion. And I think we're starting to see that. But in addition to Ingram, another player I'm really excited about, Nick, and I think, you know, he really made a great case for himself, obviously a small sample size, but a great case for himself to be resigned this offseason. And that's Cody Latimer. What did you see? I know you've been a big Latimer guy this entire year. Unfortunately, most of his first season with the Giants was sidelined by an injury. But what did you see against the Cowboys that gives you hope uh, for the Giants to potentially re-sign him this offseason? <laughs> A couple of digital things I saw that I hadn't noticed before. He's a little nuanced before the catch point. Uh, so, and I, and I kind of dug around on this. I didn't realize he was a basketball, big, big basketball prospect in high school. And once you start seeing his tape through that lens, you start 
really seeing it. He's a guy with a wider body size. He's 212, 215, right? 6'2". So he's not ginormous, but he's big. And he, But he uses that frame very, very well. So a couple base routes, like curl routes, I saw him doing things that I – you know, that help out a quarterback like Manning who, like, you know, he can give you good timing most of the time, but he's not going to give you amazing placement all the time like a normal quarterback. And so he's he's, he's your friend at the catch point. And then he flashes the athleticism to obviously make the one-handed grabs, which, you know, those are great and those are awesome hands plays. What I like, though, is the other stuff that I kind of hit in a piece where it's like he's using his other offhand to basically – really give himself space and then watch where the defender is and feel for the defender spacing next to him as he's, as he's making that contested catch. And the whole point of all this, and we've said this a few times on here, but if you run a lot of three by one sets and you have, you have uh, Odell Beckham and you have Sterling Shepard in, in the trip set, that lone X, if that lone X can beat the boundary corner, right. it's such a pain in the ass for the defensive coordinator. It's not even just rotating at coverages. It's, it's kind of like a mental thing that, you know, he's not going to beat all corners, but if you can beat some, some of the time, it's better than what they have now because they have, they have it's really no one, including guys like Shepard. It's not Shepard's strength, you know, for that one-on-one in isolation type route. And it's not something you want to run all the time. And again, it's not, it's not saying he needs 10 to 15 targets. I think this is one where it's like, if you have him on a couple deep balls, the defense, you put that on tape, the defense has to respect it. They just, they just do. And so it's one of those things where I think that you start changing the dynamic of the offense and all of a sudden things start looking better on the other side. All of a sudden and you start running Barkley onto that side out of the backfield, it, that's a real pain in the ass. Yep, exactly, Nick. And you know what's interesting to me, what I found, Nick, with regards to this, in the in the routes that, you know, on the plays where Eli Manning connected with Latimer against the Cowboys, the two go routes, um, both times it was a quick, very quick decision from Eli Manning to get the ball out of his hands recognizing the defense, recognizing the coverage, recognizing, you know, what, where, where his bread and butter was, was those one-on routes. Earlier in the season, before Latimer got hurt, their connection really was off on these deep routes. And a lot of the times it just took Manning, I thought, longer to, to make the throw and to get the ball in that direction. Um, so I think oh, – I'm sorry. Go ahead. Were you going to jump in on that? No, no. I think that um, you, you touch upon you, – you hit it kind of around the head. Um, I had a couple questions about guys saying, like, hey, on go routes, aren't they trying to get over top of the safety? Aren't they trying to get down the field? And, you know, I was trying to say, hey, listen, like in a rhythm go route a rhythm or rhythm fade, there's a very specific drop that the quarterback's taking. What you're, what the point you hit on is, is spot on. Manning at the top of his drop after a three-step drop from shotgun, the ball is out. And that's supposed to hit on the field between 18 and 25 yards when you're talking about a fade. So it's not some down deep the field shot. It's actually a yeah. rhythm that can actually work in almost like a quick game type way. It's really not, but it, you know, because it, you're getting the, the, it's the farthest route downfield you can get basically. And uh, so, yeah, no, you're definitely seeing that improvement and that a thousand percent takes, um, it's not like Manning hadn't thrown that before, but I guess the best way to say it is with those receivers and that trust and that rhythm and just doing it over and over again, it takes a while. It definitely takes a while yeah. so for sure. With those receivers, within this new offensive scheme, against the coverage you're seeing, I mean, all these things are true, and they should honestly be considered. But let's tar- turn to the bad Nick. What ha- what the hell happened with the Giants' secondary against the Cowboys? <laughs> yeah, I alluded to it earlier, and, and you know, I think it's an issue when you have the leaders, when you lose your leadership on the field, and you're running a lot of different types of coverages every down. You know, if you just think about it, just, just think about the opponent of the Cowboys. They run they run some pattern match, but it's mostly manner zone and for the most part zone. Um, on every down, it's usually out of single high. When they run too high, they run Tampa two. The, <laughs> the Giants run 10 to 12 easily in terms of different wrinkled coverages from all different two high, one high looks, 
pre-snap to man to pattern match to you know rip liz to all to many many different styles and when you do that it's just it's hard when you have guys that aren't that aren't there and you have hard it's very hard when you have only one real veteran in the back in the back end and thomas kind of directed traffic so was, there was many plays when chandler was being kind of thrown all over the field basically pre-snap to get into position and it's just one of those things where you kind of see that you see it from that perspective and you realize like hey you know people wonder why curtis riley's in there to begin with and like hey listen it's partially because he's assignment sound being assignment sound is a big, big deal. The Giants are going to go get more of those guys and 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 those assignment sound guys that can finish plays, and that's kind of the name of the game for for the secondary right now. And you mentioned the only experienced man in the back end of that secondary is Michael Thomas, but Michael Thomas really didn't play much defensive back, really didn't play right. much field, didn't play much safety during the first part of his career with the Dolphins. This is the most extended run he's gotten on the defense side of the ball. And you know what, Nick. I'm personally willing to give this defense a little bit more of a pass than other people have. And one of the big reasons for that is just look at how many rookies were playing on this defense by the end of the season. I mean, we have Tate Davis. We've got Thomas, who's not a rookie, but he's a guy who, like I said, has, doesn't have much experience. Chandler, Riley, again, not a rookie, Riley, but doesn't have much experience in safety. B.W. Webb, not a rookie, doesn't have that much real NFL experience. Grant Haley, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, Guys at every level of the defense that are either rookies, former undrafted free agents. Um, you know, so this defense has a lot of work to do, Nick. I think it's pretty clear, even to the Giants fans who only are one track with their mindset right now, fixed quarterback, fixed quarterback, fixed quarterback, that this defense needs some work. Would you agree that, you know, defense right now is a serious concern regardless of where they go with the quarterback position? I think they gotta if you have they have what, ten picks we said or eleven? They should have 11 picks uh, if the compensatory picks work out how they should. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, from a depth perspective, um, yeah, 100%. It's, it's kind of like you can't, you can't run – and this gets into the whole – what I've been thinking about a lot on the defense recently is like, what do you do? Do you get the pass rusher first to help the, 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 the secondary or do you get secondary guys that can actually run what you want to call on a consistent basis? Then hopefully they stay healthy, which again, everyone's going to have the health issues. And, and then what do you think of a guy like Landon Collins, who's basically running the show from a, uh, you know, from a leadership perspective, when you don't have him, this is kind of what you get. And so no. I don't know. I don't, so I don't know if it's spending three picks on guys. I don't think that's really the answer. I think it's a, a free agent and a and a couple of picks type thing, and then a kind of decision for their for that they're going through for the next couple of weeks, basically right now as they do their own self scouting. That if they what kind of pass rusher they think they need to consistently generate, basically to, to reduce the amount of time the quarterback has, because it's the Dak Prescott destroyed the Cowboys, the Cowboys, the, the Giants on out of structure plays, like destroyed them. And that that usually like he's good at that, but he's not great at it. They right. made him look like all pro. Yep, I, I completely agree with you, and I also agree with with basically your overall assessment there. I think it will actually be attacked even more in free agency than people expect. I think you know if the Giants are going to make a free agent swing, and we'll get to this in later shows. I haven't done a full dive into free agents just yet, I, I, and I and you know that's something I'm going to do as we move forward, probably after the Senior Bowl, because I do want to uh, you know take a full dive into that and and kind of get a good a good feel for the prospects that are in that game that, you know, like I've written about in the past, the Giants are going to be interested in these senior bowl prospects. Three players they selected in last year's draft, Will Hernandez, B.J. Hill, and Kyle Oletta. 
for guys that they fell in love with at the senior bowl. So it's a big, big deal for the Giants. But anyway, like I said, once we get into that, there will be guys to focus on on the defense. But I'm with you. I think it's going to be a full effort, uh, full focus on fixing this defense. And that's also what Dave Gettleman said. So let's do that right now. And let's transition into what Dave Gettleman said during his press conference on Wednesday. Uh, today we're recording this on a Thursday. Um, Gettleman spoke at length with the media for the first time since July. And he touched on a lot of topics, Nick. The first an obvious topic, and he knew he was going to get questions about it, so he just dove right in. And that's Eli Manning and his future with the Giants. And, you know, it was a little break from the norm because all we had been hearing is Odell Beckham saying he wants Beckham, uh, Eli back recently, Sterling Shepard agreeing with him, Pat Shermer doubling down pretty much every chance he gets to support Manning, at least publicly. And then it was Gettleman who, you know, said he wouldn't commit to Eli Manning. So there's a few things about uh, the Eli Man about Gettleman's comments on Eli Manning that I wanted to point out before tossing it over you to you, Nick, to see kind of where how you interpreted. But the things that I took away most important were this. He said, and I quote, Eli Manning can still make all the throws. He's still got it. At least that part of it. He mar he mumbled that last part under his breath. Not everyone caught that. I saw a lot of, you know, beat writers, Pat Train or whatever, writing about, you know, he's still got it. He can still make all the throws. But he said at least that part of it. And it's kind of, you know, a nod to there's other parts of it. And then if you really dig a little deeper and you listen to Pat Shermer's WFAN interview uh, yesterday, which followed um, Dave Gettleman's presser, Shermer basically taught, you know, made mention to how he want, you know, yeah, in an ideal world, we want a mobile quarterback. We can then add a, an element of zone read option to the game and other aspects to his offense that we saw in 2017 with Case Keenum. So to me, it sounds a lot like, and I know, Another thing, Nick, before we dive over here, is that it's it made headlines today when Mark Herzlick, a former a former Giants teammate, said, "Listen, what, he, what Gettleman saying really was that he needs to look at team of every other possible player, free agent, uh, possible trade candidate, and possible rookie quarterback." When he said, "I need to look at a tape," he basically said he's seen enough of Eli Manning. He wants to he needs to see if there's any actual options to replace him that he can get confident in. Uh, that's kind of how I viewed it, too, to be honest with you, Nick. I think that the process now is for the Giants to evaluate what the options outside of Manning are. And if any of them are viable, you know, to make an improvement while also not mortgaging your future. Because you have to understand something. A lot of Giants fans want Nick Foles. How are you going to get Nick Foles? He's a free agent. He's going to cost at least $20 million a year, in my personal opinion, based on what we've seen from the free agent market. I mean, Sam Bradford made $15 million last season on the free agent market at the quarterback position. So he's going to need a multi-year deal. You're going to have to commit long-term to him. It's going to set you back a little bit when it comes to looking for quarterbacks in the draft. So how did you interpret his comments personally, Nick? Um, you know, I think I think he said a lot, but he, or he talked a lot, but he said very little. And I just take a different perspective at it, um, having – Kind of a little bit of a background in in in, in finance. If you if you have a decision you got to make in the future and you got to protect your interests, you're not trying to give anyone anything about anything. And I think that if they wanted to draft a guy, let's say they really want to keep Eli, and they want to draft a guy too, right? Well, it would be nice if you just have to keep everyone off balance about if you need to if you had to trap trade up to get that player that you needed. So it keeps everyone off balance until you make the decision to initiate that you want to do it is on your own schedule versus painting yourself into a corner either way um, about the, the sixth draft pick that they have. And then as well as what, what the free agency process will look like. And I think in general, that's why, that's why I think Gettleman started off that, 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 that presser that way was to basically kind of be honest one that there is no, that there is kind of like an open dialogue between the two 
parties as to what's going to happen. But then two, just to kind of really leave it at that, because I don't think they really know. I don't think they've, the coaches, they haven't gotten the coaches feedback yet. They haven't really gone through and who knows really what the free agency landscape, like we have a good idea, but in terms of their actual interests, I think it's hard to really gauge. So I didn't, I honestly didn't take a lot away from it that actually meant anything because I knew that he was going to basically be coy and, and, and just protect his interests and really as he should. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that, and I, and I also think that, you know, Shermer's doing the right thing by basically backing Eli publicly because no matter what his evaluation says or what Shula says, it's the, that's the right thing to do too, no matter what, um, for, for this franchise now and then going forward too. It's just instead of kind of being honest or, or open about what, you know, the, anyone's down mistakes are, don't air that publicly. Um, and so I think that's what the Giants are trying to do and keep that kind of drama free almost. Normally I think I would agree with you, Nick, but in this specific case, just judging and basing this off of what we've seen from Gettleman, you know, in the first 12 months of general manager, he didn't, you know, he wasn't worried about tipping off Saquon Barkley at all. He went in really early and committed to Eli Manning uh, prior to the 2018 NFL draft when, you know, if he wanted to keep his options close to the vest or if he was still considering or, you know, you know, whatever his plan was at the time at the quarterback position. And I don't think at the time that he committed to Eli last offseason, he was committed to Barkley just yet. I think that this is is a guy who's more open and honest than most general managers in the NFL, and that might you know that might be to a fault. I don't know if it's a good thing. I agree with you. You shouldn't really tell the media anything if you really it's in your best interest to try to build Belichick and approach it, if you will. Um, but you know, I don't think he's one of those guys. So I personally found the comments very interesting, and I know I may be reading into them and whatnot, but I, I think that at this point we're starting to see some signs that he could potentially not be back. Now, again, I'm not as sold as you that, that he shouldn't be back. And my worry is just, I just don't really, it's hard for me to get too excited about the options to replace him outside of maybe Dwayne Haskins. Uh, and I guess potentially Daniel Jones and Drew Locke. Well, I'm really not huge on, but we will touch on them all eventually. But, you know, Bridgewater is another guy who's intriguing for sure. I would say the intriguing guys for me right now. Let's do a quick, quick rapid fire, Nick. Who are your intriguing options to be the Giants' potential starting quarterback? For me, I'm gonna throw mine out there, then we'll give it to you. We're gonna go for me, Bridgewater. Uh, I'm not gonna say Foles because that requires an investment long term, which I'm not interested in at all. Say Bridgewater, Haskins, and uh, as a wild card, Kyle Slaughter. Slaughter, I'm sorry. Yeah. I like the slower. You know, if it just had to pick three and kind of just shooting from the hip, yeah, Bridgewater. Um, I think you'd have to pick Haskins at this point because he's going to end up on most people's QB one. Um, and then I would I would lean to Jones as QB three, uh, or not QB three, but just the third option. Yeah, the jo- we're going to get to all these quarterbacks uh, eventually, not only on today's show but in general. But Jones and, and Locke to me, those guys are. Uh, I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to get too far, too into that. I, I see the upside with each of them, but I also see some downside. Um, and I see a much greater investment than, you know, going for someone like Sloter, who, you know, Shermer reportedly tried to trade for prior to the 2018 NFL draft there. That has never been confirmed. It's kind of like a lot of the bull, a lot of the rumors we hear. So I take it with a grain of salt, but you know, it just required to me, I, I'm more intrigued by it just because it requires less of a long-term investment. That's kind of where I'm at with this, Nick. Unless we're going, unless the Giants are going Haskins, I don't want to. I don't want to make any decision that will impact their chances of getting a quarterback in the twenty twenty class. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, and I think it. Well, 
I don't know. <laughs> I guess I think too that it's, they're going to have to go through their process. What they think about a guy like Haskins who doesn't fit their profile, what right. what their, their coaching staff has shown to be their their previous interest, but that doesn't mean that they won't coach that way or won't go with a guy like that if they think the overall upside is greater. And you know, I think everyone we've mentioned has has good impact, good positive impact early. Just because if you stick with their their best traits, I think their best traits kind of help the the position players and help distribute the ball on time on a consistent basis. So I think they're good. I think they're in a. I don't think the idea that it's quarterback hell. I don't understand where that comes from. I think there's actually a fair amount of options compared to other years where you've seen the Chicago Bears pay twenty million to guys that are really aren't in the league anymore. Hmm. You know, every, everyone that we're talking about now is. To be honest, besides Kyle Sloter is is pretty not I'm not saying well known, but they're going to be in the league in two years, three years. It's not one of those where it's like, hey, we got to go out. You know, it's it's um, it's Ryan Fitzpatrick or nobody. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of the upside where it's like, hey, like it's I know it's uncertainty and it hasn't happened in 15 years, but that doesn't mean that it, the, the sun's not going to rise tomorrow. Like that is what it is, and and so I think that's that's there's there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic on a lot of these guys. Yeah. Okay, I can I can I can handle that. Um, let's move on though, because it wasn't just Eli Manning talk. Some other things that stood out to me, Nick, was that Gettleman said exactly what Shermer said on WFAN about a month ago uh, when talking about the Giants' kind of turnaround with Mike Francesca. And he said, "There's more help coming in the trenches." He likes the improvement they made on the offensive line. He said he said, and he quoted uh, after adding Brown and uh, Jamon Brown and Chad Wheeler to the lineup, and he likes the impact that the defensive line made. The young guys coming in with Dalvin moving to his natural position, with Dave, uh, at least according to Dave Gettleman, and B.J. Hill moving into his natural position, at least according to Dave Gettleman, following the trade of Damon Harrison. But, you know, he said he's not done. We're going to keep proving the trenches. And that's something that, cut, that Pat Shermer said as well. And where do you stand on that, Nick? Because to me, I think you can never have too much talent and never have too much depth in the trenches, even if that means sacrificing, drafting more talent at wide receiver, uh, you know, talent at, at at maybe cornerback and safety for that matter yeah i think you know definitely on the defensive side they're going to need they're need they need to continue to, to add to the depth there and guys may say that's crazy because they they did that last draft already and you know i just think that you know you had guys you had good backups but journeyman type guys like john jenkins getting some snaps uh in the recent two couple games and mario edwards was out but to be honest as a as a kind of second line pass rushing group they they lacked in the last couple of games so it's like it's interesting when it's like you know you, you like you said you never have enough of those guys and and i think too um there's just an overall growth curve like if you look at the way tomlinson and hill have played in the last couple of weeks all of a sudden tomlinson's come on pretty strong and really looked he's looked a lot quicker he's looked a lot more comfortable he's reading the he's reading the plays a lot better i think i don't know why there's a there's a change i don't think it's because next isn't there or there's it's because he's moved from three tech to one tech. It's something I haven't dis- discovered the reason why. But um, I do think, though, you see in Hill when you have a rookie who's playing in his 17th game and he's not used to going that long in a season, how his play his, – I think his play strength dropped off massively. And that's not a problem. It's just you – know, or a problem. It's just the, the issue of being a rookie. So I think that when you have more of these guys and they go through the process in their second and third year, they do become massively different players. And they become more – in some cases, better condition, in some cases, worse. But ultimately, I think that that's what if you those types of fluctuations happen to defenses line defensive lines all the time, and they don't have a snacks Harrison back there now, so they got to get overall more to help the, the group the two lines. If you want to run two lines, and that's what they're going to have to do, um, you know you need that you need bodies for sure. 
Yep, and there's no doubt about that, and I'm happy that they understand that. Uh, Gelman also talked about having no regrets taking Saquon Barkley. I think we've got we don't need to rehash that debate right now. But I also thought a couple. I had a couple interesting other takeaways from Gettleman's presser. Um, you know, he basically said, and this is not something I ever entertain, but he said we didn't sign Odell Beckham Jr. to trade him. So I think that kind of shuts the door on any of the stupid trade rumors for Odell Beckham Jr. Uh, based on the salary cap uh, implications and ramifications of trading him and trading away his contract, it was never actually a possibility, which people don't, some people seriously don't realize. But, you know, obviously for other reasons, it's not a possibility. You can't – imagine the Giants trying to go out there next year with Sterling Shepard, maybe Cody Latimer, Corey Coleman, Danny Fowler, like – or maybe wasting a first-round draft pick on a wide receiver or paying somebody like Sammy Watkins $84 million on the free agent market. You know, draft picks are just not guaranteed. When you have a generational player – at the wide receiver position, position like uh, Beckham, you don't trade him. So I didn't think that was much of a surprise. But, you know, something I did find interesting, Nick, was that uh, was what Gettleman said about three decisions that he made or two decisions that he made in season um, and then the out, and, and the result of the second one. So the first one was trading Damon Harrison, which he said, you know, he was, he was uh, I guess the word was satisfied. I'm not sure if he said that, but he was I, I'm paraphrasing here, but he was satisfied with, how the young lineman played after the Damon Harrison trade. Now, that goes against some of the statistics that we saw from the Giants' run defense, and then also some of what you saw and what I saw on all 22 from the Giants' run defense. And in addition to that, uh, it goes against some of the impact that Harrison made on that Lions' run defense. He really changed that and changed the course of that run defense over the second half of the season. So do you agree with that assessment, or do you think that's him just kind of trying to, you know, make Giants fans feel better about the situation? Yeah, I think it's being professional about the guys that you have, and and not really, you know, not really trying to make too big of, of having to deal a guy who's really the top two or three nose tackle in the league. I mean, yeah, that's just it, it's 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 a good way to be, but it's not really, you know, a lot of things aren't going to be accurate when you're kind of talking to that in that media room. <laughs> yeah, I think the Harrison trade. I, I'm standing by the fact that the Harrison trade was more so a Betcher thing. I don't think I don't think Betcher thought he was the perfect fit for his defense. And I think that they figured he was expendable based on A, that they have so, they're gonna have to tie up more cap this offseason when they re-sign Landon Collins. And they need to make improvements at other spots where they don't have the kind of depth they have, like they have behind uh, behind Harrison, uh clearly with you know what you saw the improvement we saw from Tomlinson after moving to the nose and we don't know if that's the reason why as you said but the improvement we we saw from him in the second half of the season so that's kind of how I read it Nick um but you know one other thing he said was you know he tried to give an explanation for the misses on Patrick Omame and Jonathan Stewart you know saying you know we were at a different point last year as a team than we are now where we needed locker room guys like Stewart and Omame and he even said which I thought was crazy but he said you know those guys weren't necessarily signed for the, for their ability on the field, which was a wild thing to hear. But you know, he allocated almost nine million in salary cap space to those two players. So, like, clearly, I don't buy that they were just to be locker room guys. You don't spend nine million of your salary cap on on, on, on locker room guys. Do you do you see that any differently? Yeah. Again, I think it's a professional thing, so we're not having conversations. So he doesn't have to face the, the follow conversation about how you know how would you not see Omame's issues. <laughs> you know, you're talking about how he what if, if he was not overpaid for being a professional. And so yeah, yeah I think it's it's well done by him. But yeah, it's not uh, probably not exactly the entire story. The other side of this too, I brought this up on Twitter. Um, 
I, I, I'm realizing now, I, I'm not sure if people are aware of like how in depth these decisions go sometimes. Like the Giants organization is big, it's not ginormous, but he, a lot of times general managers or coaches, they're not gonna wanna speak badly about what happened because they're the ultimate decision maker. But what if this was someone in their pro department who loved the Mame and for whatever reason whiffed, right? Like if you start bashing him, you're kind of bashing your guy behind the scenes. And so it's not just like there is, he's, Gettleman's the ultimate decision maker, but there's a lot of stuff that goes along where you kind of have to either protect those interests or you don't want to kind of explain all the dirty laundry of how the decision happened. And so like, that's where it's like, I just don't think anyone's ever going to get that answer from, especially in the media room. You're going to, you're going to need them in a, in a dark room with truth CR, you know, to actually like interpret it and get it and like torture it out of them. It's not going to be that clear cut. And I think, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I guess he's going to continue and everyone's going to continue to get those types of answers, uh, especially just for the way that these dynamics are. Yeah. Agreed. Um, but, you know, one thing he did mention that wasn't just coach speak or wasn't just GM speak was that he, he said, you guys saw, I'm not afraid to move on from my mistakes. And I think that was a true point. And I think it's a really, really good, you know, trait to have as a general manager. He released Flowers. He released Omame one year into a three-year $50 million. He didn't hang on to these guys who weren't performing well. And Eli had to play, like, you know, for all the crap that we, that you, that not just you and me, but like, Everyone gives Eli Manning, and he's, again, like like I've said, I don't think he's an above-average quarterback anymore. He did have to play with Flowers and Omame for, for however many weeks, like, and all of training camp and all of, you know, all the time that he was trying to gel with this new offensive scheme. And that's a serious issue. Like, that's a serious detriment to any quarterback. Like, any quarterback who do – these guys aren't NFL players. They're just not. I watched them a little bit in Jacksonville. They're horrible there. They were horrible with the Giants. Like, you know, they may have some talent that – you know, spark Gettleman's interest when it comes to Omame or whatnot and, you know, for Reese when it came to Flowers. But, you know, they're not good offensive linemen, and I don't think they're NFL offensive linemen for that matter. So, you know, I was I was definitely pleased with his decision and, and this, his decision to get rid of those guys and, you know, the quick trigger that he's pulled on some of his mistakes. Yeah, no, the, uh, the, the, the ability to admit when you're wrong and to move on is, uh, is, a, nice, is a nice way to time, the, uh, to time a mistake for sure. Sure. And so on that note, Nick, I want to dive a little bit into some quarterback talk because, you know, that's where this offseason is going to go. And I want to preface this uh, to all our listeners by saying, listen, a lot of these players we haven't had the chance yet to evaluate to the extent we want to. I have not seen even close to the amount of, you know, games that I want to see for this rookie quarterback class. I'm nowhere close and it's going to take some time. It's going to take me finding the assets for it. I and mean, it's not as easy as it was last offseason uh, to find games on these players that used to be you know, an excellent website draft breakdown that, you know, shut down that we used to use. And, and I'm finding ways now uh, via some of the guys that I've co connected with on Twitter. But, you know, it's going to take some time for me to break it all down and Nick as well. We have seen some stuff already. And we're going to start with a player that Nick spent extensive time on. And I want you, Nick, to break down real quick or as, you know, what, however long you want to, because, you know, you know what? Our listeners are certainly interested in quarterback talk. Give me why. Give me your case on Teddy Bridgewater to New York Giants, and then give me an outline for the kind of contract they should sign him to. Well, I, mean, I, I don't know about the contract. Um, what, like he would get like a three-year type thing, maybe two or three-year? No, because that's a big issue when it comes to the decision to get Bridgewater. What kind of contract will we want, and what kind of contract is it smart to sign him to? Right, right. Yeah, no, I'm not going to have a whole – I'll be honest, I'm not going to have a whole ton of insight for – how you're going to want to do that. I would imagine something that's pretty incentive laden. Um, but, you know, again, I think he's a guy that, you know, 
can be deserving of something kind of bigger over time for sure. And so the biggest thing for the tape and, and people go, what tape? And we're talking about 2015 tape and we're talking about actually a little bit of what happened last Sunday with the, uh, in the Saints game where, where he started. Um, you know, overall, I think there's kind of like a few main highlights that people have to understand. And the first is the pocket mobility. And that's not exactly, for Bridgewater, that's not exactly like an escapability thing, although he's good at that. He's not really known for that, though. And his frame, he's only like 215 or 220. His frame is not something that you kind of want running around all the time. He's not anywhere near like a Cam Newton type size. And just no one really is. But he's not exactly that type of guy that's going to be constantly moving. He's a pocket passer, and he's a guy who's a timing and rhythm passer. So he's kind of right right away. The, the, the profile match with Shermer is very, very strong. Um, and in 15, he was kind of playing with a play caller who wasn't doing as much of that as you would expect uh, in North Turner in Minnesota through 14 and 15, I should say, for that. And so the pocket mobility angle to the ability to come off his spot and the ability to basically get rid of the ball when he needs to in the quick game very, very quickly and accurately, that's kind of his strong point. Um, I think people are going to go, well, what about the Saints game? He didn't do that really at all until maybe parts of the second half. And I think that gets into kind of rust and what you see when you have guys that are playing their first almost like preseason game. Their play speed is like very, very slow. But what you're, what part of this is based on is getting a projection of how much he can get back to 2015. And his play speed then was very, very good. And that people kind of forget, but he basically won a playoff game um, at home uh, before what's-his-face missed that field goal very, very famously. And that game was a crazy game where it was not a very offensive game, but the final drive that he had, he had I broke down some of those throws. They were really high-class, like big-time NFL throws that were made. And a big part of that has to do with the mobility. On top of that, um, the his, he has a sidearm release, and this is kind of a problem on his, on his overall accuracy on intermediate balls because basically you have your arm, the ball has a tendency to sail when you throw those 15 to 20 yard out routes or, uh, you know, or even like kind of deeper posts um, that made, that certainly is, is kind of there over all those accuracy numbers were not negative when he was in Minnesota, which is, I find kind of bizarre. Um, but anyway, the, uh, what was interesting about the arm angle aspect is against pressure. It makes him very, very good in my mind because he can throw through trash is the phrase that you use. He can basically, he can, he can find ways to get the ball out despite the fact that he may not have an obvious throwing lane. And that was something that as he had the later parts of the 15 season, he was doing that really, really well. And so, so guys asked too, like when you, when we scout a 15 season or any player for a whole season, you're looking at five to seven games over spread out amount of the, of the season. You're looking to get kind of the player at all different points and see where he's improved and see how it's changed and, and whatnot. So that was something by the end of that season, he was, really looking good in that regard and um you know the big part for me here is that when you have muddy pockets like you do in the nfl and for the giants offense for anyone any offense for that matter you need that guy that can do that now and he's not going to be the guy that can basically scramble and give you that unbelievable play all the time he can scramble he does have capability but he doesn't rely on that it's ability to, to have good things like good eye discipline and, and stay within the structure of the offense which <clears throat> quite frankly, the Giants have not had in years for that matter, for in that regard. Um, so those kind of the, were the big, big factors that I had. Um, and in general, when you have a quarterback who's timing and rhythm based, you know, that's going to overlap the most with Pat Shermer, which is probably why he won. He was very high of him, high on him when they, when he became the coordinator. And was he the coordinator when we got hurt in 16? I can't remember. Anyway, he was, he was on the coaching staff. Um, yeah. So, so we at that time. Right, right. And so, so it was still Northship at that point. And so it's one of those things where it's like that overlap is very, very strong. And I know how people are worried about the injury and they're worried about 
It was a total freak, crazy injury. And this gets into a whole thing, which many writers, much better than I have, have talked about his character and the amount of people backing him is totally crazy from Bill Parcells to who have gotten to intimately know him and are now basically like all in on him. It's Bill Parcells. It's every coach he's ever had. Um, you know, of all guys to come back from an injury, it's like this is kind of it's like the guy to do it. And just so when I saw that at the end of my study there, I didn't realize that at all. You kind of like to watch film first uh, before you get to know the background, or the background story. Um, that's just for me. I'm able to kind of think like he's going to get if, – if it's if it's not the Giants, it's going to be someone else that's in a timing rhythm type offense. Someone's going to give this guy a contract. And you still have a guy who's 26 years old who has good footwork, who has at times a quick release. People pointed out to me he does have a longer motion on some throws, but in the quick game, he's very good. And that is what this game, the NFL and college, is very, very centered around now. Um, I just think that's that's a that's a good kind of basically recipe to uh, for, for success, especially early for a team like the Giants next year. And you know what, Nick? A lot of people bombarded me in my notifications after bridge or after week 17. Oh, juicy how bad Bridgewater was. You see how bad Bridgewater was. I haven't had the tape time yet to break down the all 22 that same team, though I do plan to. But you know what I did have the time to do, Nick? And that was read your entire piece that you put up on cover one about Bridgewater that I really suggest everyone takes the time to read. It's a long one. It's probably my favorite work you've done all season, Nick. And uh, I'm not saying that I pat your back, you know, because you're my boy and my co-host. But it was awesome. And I really got excited reading it and looking at the clips. But you know what really excited me the most, Nick? It was two things. One, that if Bridgewater is fine to be the quarterback of the Giants, it will be the rebirth of the Pat Shermer screen game, something that he made so famous and something he did so well in Minnesota and something the Giants have the players to do, Ingram. Barkley, those two guys are awesome screen game players, but Eli Manning is one of the worst screen game passers in the NFL. Even the biggest Eli supporter will tell you that right now. He's never been able to throw the screen accurately. He doesn't have the mobility and movement that you need sometimes to sell the screen. He doesn't have the throw the ability to throw through trash that you talked about. And the second most important thing, and the second thing that really stood out to me, Nick, about your evaluation, and that I actually think is a massive, massive plus, is that he can throw from different arm angles. I think in today's NFL, and I think you termed it throwing through trash. I think in today's NFL, it's super important to be able to throw from different arm angles because not only are the protections going to break down, but also there's so many more plays to be made out of structure. The Giants just, you know, the Giants fans are just not used to because they haven't made any. So, you know, they make a, a handful of plays out of structure a year with Eli Manning at quarterback. So I'm not going to judge him off of that game, though I will go back and look at it. And that's something we have to do, Nick. Um, I'm not sure if you had a chance to do it yet, but – I will. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I did. And sorry just to jump in, but you know, a lot of that's a lot. I actually saw a fair amount of good, and and it's it the most of the bad. Just to really quickly summarize it, the most of the bad is is you have a player who's it's like his first preseason game. Right. So you have play speed issues. You have he was scatter shot. You know, but what he's able to do is he actually showed awesome second reaction type throws where he's making plays kind of half out of structure as he's moving one way and he's got to throw the ball the other way, which I didn't think. You know, I didn't really see a ton of in his 15 tape, and he's comfortable doing that kind of right away. And he's a, and he, he was a guy that you know ultimately made mistakes, but his mistakes were very much again week one, week two of the preseason. And so that doesn't mean that you're you're all good. It means that you're kind of like, eh, well, it was a week 17 start that didn't mean anything. But he was able to plant on that leg and look healthy on that leg and take hits on that leg. And you know, there was really very little, you know kind of feedback there from his body it seems so that that was by far the biggest takeaway and and you know we'll see it's one of those things it's, it sucks that that's the only tape you're going to get of his 
basically before you sign up to a big contract. But that's kind of how the way this is going to work out for this type of story. And you know what, Nick? It's, you mentioned this, and it's not just Bill Parcells. And not just you mentioned everyone who comes in contact with them. Good thing to say. Sean Payton, after just one week, after spending one week with him this offseason, said he's a quick study. I think right away you can tell he got extremely comfortable with what we were calling and the protections. And then after a game earlier this season between the Vikings and the Saints, you know, Kirk Cousins, there was a moment that was captured on NFL Films where Kirk Cousins kind of whispers in his ear, listen, everyone here speaks extremely highly of you. You left a really good mark on this organization. These aren't just things that, you know, Cousins isn't gonna, just going to come out and say that to anyone. He's going to say that to somebody if that's actually the truth. There's no reason to lie about something like that. Somebody like Teddy Bridgewater, backup quarterback, you know? Um, and, and it's not like Cousins had been with the franchise before that. Like, there's no deep-rooted history or reason he would want to make him feel that way. So I'm still on board with this this plan if that's what they're going to do. If they're going to move on from Eli Manning, to me, the best option is to go with Bridgewater. Um, I know as of now, Nick, uh, this is going to actually kind of help me transition to the next part. Okay, Nick? I've never actually gotten your take on Mr. Nick Foles. And I want to get I need it. I need the take on Nick Foles because I want to know if the Giants do decide to cut Eli Manning, they're going to want to go. And even if they're going to plan to draft somebody like Haskins, they're going to probably take a shot on Bridgewater, Foles, one of these guys. So, if you know, for your money, A, where are you at with Nick Foles? B, are you still willing? Would you like his evaluation? Do you like him more than Bridgewater? And then C, if you if A and B are true for you, do you want to invest, you know, a mid middle a decently long term contract in Foles because you're going to have to give him guaranteed money. He's not going to accept a one year deal or a prove it type deal. Yeah, the uh, the Foles side of things, um, you got a couple things that are very characteristic of Foles games. He's one of the or at Foles as a player, he's one of the most one of the streakiest players really in the league, especially at the quarterback position. Um, he is very deliberate in his post-snap reads. So what do I mean by that? He's kind of careful. He's very he's not very quick acting, especially on longer type, intermediate type passing um, concepts. And when I say long and intermediate, I'll get to what I mean. What, what I mean on the quick game with a great article this week that just came out. Um, but on the intermediate side, if people actually went back to the 2017 tape when he played the Giants after Wentz got hurt. People would have that was his best game in the, during the regular season before the playoffs. And if I if I if I gave you all the tape I have in that game, all the cutups, you would be like, "How the hell did this guy ever win a Super Bowl?" I mean, it was like it was not it was basically not functioning on any route over any route over fifteen yards was not functioning. And so, what you what the, what Doug Peterson did and, and that incredible coaching staff did because it, it really was incredible. I don't know if it could happen again in that way like through the entire playoffs against very good defenses. They basically had a lot of elements that he used in his past from RPOs to alternate parts of the quick game to, to give him as much as he can before the snap, which is what which is where the overlap with Shermer comes in. Shermer wants to do that too. All coaches really want to do that. They want to use motion. They want to use all these different factors to give the quarterback the read so that he doesn't have to do much other than throw the ball. And that's not a knock on the quarterback, but you want them to be an athlete. You want everyone to be athletes. You want to take out as much of the thinking in motion after the snap as you can. He really thrived in that environment when it was served up for him that way. And so Ben Solak this week, who's a writer for Bleeding Green Nation, he had a great article kind of quantifying that and then adding a little bit of tape there too. But the quantification of that was really interesting because the Eagles offense changed with him um, uh, as opposed to Carson Wentz. So what does that mean for the Giants? I think it would mean a good overlap on the, sh on the quick game 
but I am not a fan of the overlap on the intermediate side of the, of the house, which is our, which is an area I think Shermer is very underrated in. And I think it's something where like, you know, look at what Eli has done well in the past six weeks on just flood concepts off a of play action boot. I don't really see that being a Foles thing at all. Um, and so he, I'm not saying he can do it, but it's not, it's not, it's not his go-to. You know, you're, I think, I think all of a sudden you'd have to add in a lot of elements that you probably don't have already. And you would, in my opinion, have a limited ceiling. Now, if this is two years ago and you have a chance to get Nick Foles as a backup, that's a completely different story. Then to Dan's point, you're talking about a $20 million probably investment at that level. Cause he is that that's the way it goes for this, for this. And he's, he's not old. He's only what, 28, 29. Yeah. Um, Right, so you're you're okay in that sense, but it's just if it, I'm not there at the level where you want to pay him for what makes the Giants great or or needs to make the Giants great going forward. And I think when you look at you know select shot plays, although he's had a lot of good shot plays recently on on tape for Foles, it's not his thing. You know, again, the playoffs last year that was not his thing really until the Super Bowl. Right. And so you, you get into this scatter shotness that you, which is a big thing that I hit Eli on, right? Like you, you get a little Jekyll and Hyde, and I think you have a lot of that same element. And when you start adding on the intermediate side uh, of the house for the passing game, I think it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt the Giants overall. The Giants need to have that guy that can that can feel comfortable 25, 30 yards downfield. Yeah, and you know what, Nick, you said it. I mean, something you said is where I'm going <laughs> to where I'm going to end this. I'm not paying Nick Foles for an incredible job at the Eagles coaching staff on a five game sample size last year. I'm just not doing it. And you know what? He wins a lot in the RPO game as well. Something you're going to have to – the Giants aren't using – you know, they were using a little bit earlier, more earlier in the season at least. And they still used obviously throughout the year. But, you know, I'm just not going to pay him for what the Eagles coaching staff did. And I don't – you know, I I think investing in Nick Foles would be one of the dumbest decisions the Giants could make this offseason, honestly. Invest, at least investing any long-term guaranteed money. And I'll just st- say that and I'll defend it later on. But, you know, because I'm sure I'll take some heat for that. Because uh, a lot of people are Nick Foles fans, and some people want him to the Giants. But let's transition a little, Nick, because most of us want more of a long-term solution for the Giants at the quarterback position. And we finally had a little bit of a chance to start to watch some of these quarterback prospects. It's you know projected to give a little overview for those who don't know. It's projected to be one of the weaker classes at the quarterback position, um, especially after recent news broke that Oregon quarterback Justin Herbert will return to college for another season, which means you know next class is going to feature Herbert, Tua, and Fromm. Uh, for what it's worth, but there are still prospects that are worth talking about. We're starting to watch games. Like I said earlier, we haven't seen enough. At least I haven't seen enough. I can't speak for you, Nick. You feel like you've seen enough so far, or no? Uh, yeah, no. And 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 from the especially within the senior group, uh, no, because because of Mobile is still coming up, so that's kind of a big big deal. And but in terms of Haskins, like enough to give a profile overview, but you know overall, it's it's only in the one to two to three type broadcast game, you know, type thing. Right, and that's where I'm at too. Just just a few games broadcast, but you know, I've I've, I've seen a, a more than a few games broadcast with Haskins. I'm a Big Ten guy. For those who probably know, for those who don't know, I went to Wisconsin and I watch a lot of Big Ten football. So I've seen a lot of you know live broadcast games. I've tried to do some. Ga- I've gotten my hands on all of Haskins game tape from this season. So I'm trying to do a little more of a deeper dive there. Uh, you know, really focused in on the game against Washington, which was important to me because. Washington has a really good secondary. I watched Justin Herbert struggle mightily against Washington earlier this season. I saw that entire game. And then I watched Haskins the other day play really well against Justin Herbert. So I want to get – I'm sorry, against the Washington defense. So I want to get your overall takeaways uh, on Haskins and what you've seen so far. 
Uh, yeah, you know, you have the, the large, well, he's not that, it's funny, he's only, he's only 220, 6'3", 220. And he looks I say, yeah. yeah, he plays bigger and looks bigger on tape. And that's where, honestly, the combine and anyone who has access there is going to, it's going to be a big deal because people have to, they're going to have to project what his frame looks like in terms of adding 20 to 10 to 20 pounds, I think. Um, because if he's going to be a pocket passer with the mobility that he basically doesn't have, you're going to have to have a guy who's going to take shots. Um, and and that's just that's just the nature of the beast in the NFL. And so you have a guy who's six, like you said, he's 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 big, but he's not he's not fully filled out filled out yet. Um, you know, the biggest thing you got to talk about what his what makes him really tick, I think, is his FBI's football intelligence and his decision making. He is very very quick decision maker. That is going to make Pat Shermer. That's a big plus in Pat Shermer's book, not because of what he said, but because of the guys that he employs basically and has employed in the past. And so I think as you know, after the after the you know the Rose Bowl, what you saw is after like he got the first few throws underneath his belt, his his ability to make second reaction throws, primary reaction throws, make quick decisions within reads is very very good. But people have to understand from background that don't you know the Ohio State offense is mostly kind of Chip Kelly type derivation um, of basically intermediate and quick concepts with a lot of like. It's a lot of interesting stuff is kind of the way to say it, but it's a lot of vertical stuff down the field, a lot of stretching the field horizontally and vertically. Um, and, and he, and he does, he did very well in it statistically this year. Um, so the decision-making is there, his arm strength and arm and a quick release are very good. Um, I'd have to say they're kind of, it's above Herbert's I think in that regard, um, even though Herbert throws a better deep ball, I think, you have Haskins with an ability to hit the intermediate level of 15 to 25 yards with, with really good accuracy. And the weird thing about that, just to get super technical, is that Haskins' footwork isn't great. It's like kind of slow. And so he's able to make these throws from kind of spots where you wouldn't think he'd be able to make those throws. A lot of times his shoulders are open and kind of in not, he's not a, you know, like a, train wreck in terms of fundamentals, but he's not the type of guy whose feet are very active and he's constantly pointing to where he wants to go with the football. Um, he's someone that's making those decisions in his own kind of internal rhythm, but you're not necessarily seeing it through his feet. I say that because I think that if you went to a guy like McCarthy, who's like a Nazi with his footwork, you kind of have, a, I think you'd have a problem. Um, so for, I think those are the biggest things that drive it. What's interesting is he's not super twitchy, um, but his overall arm talent, I think on pressure, I like, but I don't love yet. That's what I'm not comfortable with yet. And I need a lot more study there. And as well, I think the mobility factor is a big, big deal because what Dan was saying, and many guys have said like, you know, he is, he's not fluid in his motion. He looks a little stiff from the, from the waist down, you know, overall it's, I don't know if he's really going to become a bootleg type guy. I don't know if that's what Shermer totally wants. He'd probably have to go outside his profile for that, but that's okay. I think, you know, I think his talent is enough where that would make sense. And um, overall it's those things, those things have worked for him accuracy wise in terms of his faults in the college level. That's been great. But can that work in the NFL level? I don't, I, that's what I'm not comfortable with and kind of have to still do it a lot more work on. And it's funny you mentioned that, Nick, you mentioned all that, Nick, because it's like we didn't compare notes before this, but a lot of the things you see are what I'm seeing. And, you know, some what's really – the pros that have really stood out to me are, one, it's like you said, his football IQ is so much higher than I thought it was going to be. I really thought, you know, there's a chance that, you know, this is a guy who's a system quarterback like some of the other Ohio State quarterbacks have been. But he's not. I mean, he works his way through reads really well, and he diagnoses things really exceptionally well to the point where, you know, you're thinking like this guy could be a very – easy, quick study, somebody who can come in 
earlier than you would think. Um, at the, and it's so crazy, too, to me, Nick, because this is his first full season in college football. He didn't play the yeah. season before. So he probably should have, but he didn't play for Ohio State the season before. And then, you know, another thing that really stands out is like, and you you broke it down on one play in the red zone where he had to kind of change his arm angle to, to hit to hit kind of a, a quick out pass. And he, he really has – he really does a really good job of maintaining his accuracy even with like so-so kind of iffy mechanics. It's really interesting to me. And that's kind of what I see from him. And, you know, it's interesting because you met, you talk about the mobility. And Shermer said on – like I said, Shermer said on the fan – you want a quarterback who can move. You want for, and that's not, not just for his system. It's for a lot of NFL systems right now. But he also said, you still, no matter what, above all, need a quarterback who can win from the pocket. And he, you know, he understands that, Sherman. I think, you know, most good football, you know, smart football minds understand that. And from what I've seen, you know, Haskins really does a really good job of winning from the pocket. He completed 70% of his passes this season, 50 touchdowns, uh, over 10 yards per attempt just eight interceptions. Like the numbers are phenomenal. They really are. And this is not the first game where I've been super impressed by him. I was impressed by him against Michigan. You know, earlier in the season, I gave him some crap because I, I had a chance to watch the Penn State game uh, multiple times where he really looked terrible. But, you know, it's a tough spot for him. It's early in the season. He's not used, he's, you know, it's his first few games with these players in that scheme as the starter. And it's in Happy Valley for the whiteout. The crowd was really into it there. Um, so, I, I, you know, I didn't rule him out based on that, but you know, the improvements I've seen are really impressive. So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens there, Nick. Because a, you know, will the Giants see him as their guy? B, how do they get him if they see him as their guy? Because there's no guarantee that if you sit at six, Nick, you're going to get Dwayne Haskins. You know what I mean? It's not. That's not the situation here. I think it's going to be tough because again, like we're so early in this process and, it, and the, there's going to be a lot of things or a lot of events are going to unfold, but I really think Gruden's going to fall in love with the overall arm talent. Um, and I think he's just one of those kind of guys that, you know, if you're a traditional West coast dude and you have a guy who could put the ball wherever you need it to be put within 20 yards, how do you not take that guy? And so right away, then you're in a bidding war with Oakland, you know, and away we go with all the speculation, right? And so it's it's kind of a, it's a tough one, and I don't you know who knows, but I think that's I really think Gruden's gonna like him a lot. Yeah, and you know, like you said, he really can accurately put the ball in a lot of spots in that in that in that twenty and under range. He's really accurate. That's probably my best take, my biggest takeaway from him is accuracy. But you know, it's not just Gruden there, Nick, because teams like the Jaguars and other teams can trade up to get ahead of the Giants. Um, and, you know, any team really can do that if they really fall in love with them. So we'll move on a little bit of Daniel Jones talk. I actually had to go watch that Duke bowl game because I didn't see it at the time. And my, my buddy was like, did you see this Daniel Jones kid? This kid looks really, really good in the bowl game. Now look back and, you know, I saw a game earlier this season. I'm forgetting which one it was. It was either tech or I don't remember if it was tech or Virginia. It was one of those two games, one versus one of those two teams, I should say. And I didn't like what I saw from Jones. I thought that he struggled with the outs, and I thought that his velocity on some of the NFL, what I call the NFL throws, the seams, and the outs, wasn't where I wanted it to be. He threw 17 touchdown passes this season. That's not great, um, especially in the ACC to me. A lot of warm weather games there. Um, so obviously he threw for six touchdown passes, and he, it was obviously, I mean, quite <laughs> arguably the best game of his season. Um, he's worked under David Cutcliffe. The uh, Duke head coach, a guy who obviously Giants fans could be familiar with because he's the guy who works with Eli Manning, works with Peyton Manning's uh, at the Manning Passing Academy and whatnot. So you'll probably see a lot of similarities to to the way you know some of his mechanics to what you see from the Mannings 
uh, from that standpoint. So what did you see from Jones, not only in the bowl game, but any other games you got a chance to look at? Yeah, I got, got a chance to see him a little on um, a few things here. Um, you know, similar type high football intelligence. I know that definitely is a testament to his coaching. Um, you know, he, he manages the protections there. It was noted a lot of changes in the line of scrimmage. It's kind of a pretty pro-ready yeah. type prospect in that level. Um, what The biggest thing that stands out to me, just an upside, just real quick, is his footwork is awesome. Um, his footwork is probably, I mean, I haven't, again, I'm going to, I'll see him in mobile, but his footwork, I think is maybe the best of the group. Um, he handles, he's had a ton of pressure and I don't mean, you know, like mental pressure, but physical pressure because that offensive line is terrible. And so he's taking a lot of shots and I was trying to look during the Clemson game. If, you know, he's certainly a tough dude. Like he was, he played with a broken collarbone earlier in the season, right? I couldn't remember what game that was. Um, or it was a broken something earlier in the season, but it, it, the one thing I think is a little bit interesting and not really not many guys are talking about, it. I think he's a little bit cavalier with the way he takes basically offense. And when he goes out of structure, his decision-making kind of goes, 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 it goes haywire a little bit. And that's when he makes mistakes and you see kind of interceptions at different points in the game and, and turnovers and, and just kind of basically missing throws. But overall, I think that is, it's his game is really good. It's it's a little bit more dependent though on the right type of. See, I, I think a lot of this, and most people probably don't want to like have this opinion, but I think a lot of it is such a crapshoot to the overall development of the player after he gets drafted, the continued development, and the type of coordinators and overall system, quote unquote system that he gets in. And I think that his he's not a finished product. None of these guys are, but I think he's probably on. He's much more raw than like a Haskins. That's good and bad. And I think that I think he's going to need continue. When I say raw, meaning overall, you don't have the a refined Josh Rosen type product as a pocket passer and a refined overall type X Y Z name like like the best guys in that regard. So I put him like the more middle of the range in that scale. And overall, I don't know if his I like his arm talent a lot. Um, I think it's I think he can I really do think he can make kind of quote unquote all the throws. And I, saw, I think you saw that a lot in the Clemson game uh, specifically. I just don't know if he's the type of guy who, you know, when the game kind of – he needs to hone his ability to to basically take chances, I think. Um, and then as well, uh, you know, overall, there may be kind of durability issues for a guy that's taken that many hits. This I'm super early in the process though with him and kind of need a lot more understanding for, for his injury history and, and that type of thing. Yeah, I mean – you know, I'm not saying that uh, my, my takeaways are the gospel. I just personally thought that, you know, the arm talent wasn't exactly where I wanted to be, Nick. But, you know, there's, like I said, I still need to see a lot more too as well. So we'll get there, Nick. We certainly will. Um, you know, one guy I want to mention real quick, real briefly, before we dive into the listeners' questions, and that's Kyle Sloter, the backup quarterback in the Vikings. Like I said, rumored to potentially be a trade candidate for Pat Shermer last draft go around. Um, now he's entering the final year of a, of a cheap three-year deal. Um, so I think he's more tradable uh, if the Giants want to give up one of their, you know, 11, what will be 11 draft picks, I believe, uh, to get him. Um, he's a guy six foot five, really good mobility. Uh, all the tools really good. The, uh, the, the ball jumps out of his hand. Uh, I've obviously only seen a lot of preseason action with him. He didn't really play that much quarterback in college because he was forced to transition to receiver based on injuries at that school. And they really didn't exactly know what they had. Um, just somebody to keep an eye on based on his history with Shermer, based on his size, six foot five, his mobility and his arm talent. Um, and I would be really intrigued if the Giants decided to make a look at, uh, to, to, to take a move and, and, you know, take a chance and trade for him. Is he someone you've had any chance to look at yet, Nick? 
No, he was an SMU kid that transferred, I guess, to Northern Colorado, and and no, and and I had the preseason no, and, and it's um, I guess it, I guess it was both the last two years for that. Uh, no, I have not, and uh, it's one of those ones where it's kind of it's, it's tough. I don't know if like it's the type of thing where you even have to trade him. Like, do you think like with a new another new regime, would they even think that he would get a, a camp type thing? I don't know. So the Giants may kind of sit and wait on that one, just because. Yeah. You know, maybe this is the type of situation where you get him as the as UDFA, and it's a much better way to go. And then all of a sudden, he's competing with basically, you know, with the Lolettas of the world to basically kind of get to to slide into the two three spot, that type of thing. Yeah, that's interesting to think about too, because they do have Simeon still on the roster uh, behind Kirk Cousins, and obviously they're pretty well invested at that quarterback position. They don't really have many moves to make after giving Kirk Cousins eighty four million guaranteed, which. By the way, not to toot my own horn, I said it was a terrible decision from the start. Uh, but, you know, it doesn't look like Vikings fans are too happy about that right now. I was trying to do some searches for any kind of game film type stuff I could find on Sloter on, on Twitter. And I, I instead, I just saw a lot of, would we really be any, from Vikings fans, would we really be any worse if Sloter was the starting? They just showed the, the salary cap hits over the next year for Cousins, Sloter, and Simeon. They're like, would we really be any worse if Sloter was starting a quarterback instead of Cousins? Which I thought was pretty funny. But um, it's, not, it's not good up in uh, Minnesota right now. No, <laughs> first they blame the first coordinator, now they blame the second. So, but anyway, we'll move on. Um, and and let, let's transition here because we got a lot more quarterback talk to come on the show. Don't worry, I know that's what you guys want, guys and girls want. But we're gonna, you know, it's gonna take time. We're gonna do it slowly throughout the entire off season as we watch more, as we see more, and as you know, different players start to come into potential, you know, come into the mix of potential Giants targets. Uh, but for now, let's transition to the listeners' questions. Uh, this one's on me, guys. I didn't do a good job of getting the question, you know, the call for questions out early enough. I will do that uh, for the next episode. There's still going to be a lot to talk about, especially as we transition past the Senior Bowl. Um, but the first question uh, comes from Benji, who asks, what are your thoughts on Curtis Riley being benched for a lack of effort? We know Dave Gettleman isn't afraid to trade. Or, I'm sorry. That, it's a two-part question, so we'll start. we'll start with that one. Uh, why he was benched, or or, or just sorry, like, I guess he wants to know what what our thoughts are. You know, on deciding to bench someone for a lack of effort. I think it was, you know, when you play that playback, um, yeah, it's it's tape that you don't want to have out there, and uh, and so it was it was not a great play. And overall, you know, again, I'm I'm somehow like the the lone. <laughs> Like defender of, of of this of this young converted quarterback or cornerback to safety, um, you know I think that it, it's kind of the same point that um, when these when 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 teams go through development of players they try to balance the upside and the downside the upside which again I don't know if people really want to like this is really important is his assignment soundness and his physicality early in the year in the year overall he's a good cover guy he's not great. Um, but it, it's, it's the, the, when you have that type of upside, you kind of deal with the downside and see if you can work through it. Like, for example, Grant Haley is a great developmental prospect because he's a guy who's just completely undersized. But, you know, you try to take the upside with him and then balance it. And hopefully the upside gets bigger and gets more realized and the downside gets nullified. What's happened, though, with Riley is he's also been a high tackler. He's been inconsistent in his tackling, and he's, been, he's had – let's get real specific. He's had issues with speed. On, ang- on from an angle perspective, uh, you know some of the plays that where guys kind of blow him up. Like 
it's not exactly him doing the wrong thing. It's him kind of doing like a rookie thing in terms of, uh, of taking the wrong angle. Um, so those were issues. Those issues get blown. Those issues get way more out of proportion when his physicality has gone down in the last eight weeks. And, you know, the assignment soundness kind of means less at this point of the year because, again, it's kind of like an audition to basically stay around as a guy like that who's a developmental player. And so I think that decision when you have the physicality going down and you still have the problems and then you have what you saw, it's kind of like – I'm not saying it's like a no-brainer because actually in the wake of him being there, like I said, I don't think anyone could really help the secondary make calls. And they had you know penalties. They had guys in the wrong position. So there was a ramification for him sitting on the bench, and they were willing to take it at that point. Um, so totally something that, that that was right to happen. And, you know, hopefully the guy can get a job here somewhere else. But it was something where it was just it was a it, it, it makes sense when you start looking at the upside and the downside from that perspective. Yeah, no doubt about it. And we'll see what happens at that in general at the safety position this offseason. I think there's still a lot of a lot to unfold there. Um, Benji also asks, with D, we know Dave Gettleman isn't afraid to trade up to get his guy. And that's true based on his history in Carolina. Will he stick with Eli, shore up both of the lines, and trade up in 2020, assuming we don't suck? Or will he grab a QB this offseason? <laughs> a million-dollar questions all right in front. I, I, we I, the answer. We would be the you know, popular. Yeah, part. right. I, I think it's – you know, well, my opinion means, means nothing, right? I'm just like a dude, a bearded dude with Wi-Fi. But in the end, like, what do I think Gettleman will do? Like, I think Gettleman – I think Gettleman will – I think Gettleman, if he feels the need to trade up, he will trade up to a certain point to basically, in my opinion, outbid Gruden um, for whoever wants a quarterback. Because I guess basically San Francisco is going to trade out of that second spot. And then it's kind of – and move that way. Um, you know, I, I think that he's going to be – I think he's not – he's certainly not afraid to trade up. And I think that is is Manning going to be here next year? Uh, no, I don't. Yeah, I mean that's uh, like I said. We if we had answers to that question, we would uh, we we would be we would be working for the Giants potentially. Um, he also asked, why do people feel Bridgewater is a viable option? He has shown nothing during his career to indicate that he can be trustworthy as a starting quarterback in the league. This is coming from Benji. I mean, we don't need to go back into this since we we, we you know we already did. Um, so I think that that you know. In terms of results, though, too, like I gave the traits, like he, like I said, he did lead his team. They were 10 and 6, had a home playoff game, and they basically won a home playoff game in 15, if not for their kicker. So I know that was in 2015, so that was a couple years ago, but that's, you know, it wasn't that, it wasn't like, it wasn't in 2011. Um, you know, so it's, it's more recent. And I think as well, too, the more people forget what I say, the more people do the background on his character alone, it's a super easy story to get up behind. And that's almost, you know, the Giants have shown in the past that they paid for that type of player. Yeah, no doubt about it. And, like, we've, we've done our breakdown on this as well. So let's move on to another question. Hey, Dan, which positions are more likely to be filled in free agency? Right tackle and free, save, uh, right tackle and free safety uh, or, or edge, cornerback, and D-line versus the draft? The question is, where are they going to go uh, free agency versus the draft or what's more likely? I would say no, go ahead, Nick. Sorry. No, no, no. You got it. You got it. You, you start off. Well, I was going to say I think that they're going to make a big move and get Dara Williams in free agency. I really have thought this for a while. I think there's a lot of reasons to believe they will get him. Uh, you know, because 
A, it's not easy to find an insert right now offensive tackle in the NFL from the draft. It's it, you know even in a class like this one, which is strong, and I still think they could draft a tack offensive tackle after signing Daryl Williams, more of a long term guy or somebody they can you know use at guard before transitioning to tackle. I think when you can get a guy like Williams, they hit the free agent market, which is so rare these days. And the Panthers, you know, they have not re-signed him yet. Part of the reason is because he went on injured reserve early in the season. But the point is, he is going to most likely hit the free agent market. And these guys are rare. He was, you know, pro football focuses number two offensive tackle for the 2017 season before getting injured this season. And so it's just a really easy, quick fix and something they really need. So I think that they will attack that there. At the safety position, I also kind of think they're going to try to do something in free agency. Just because in free agency, there's going to be players out there just in the entire secondary overall that they believe could fit their specific scheme better than other for better for them than other teams. So they can find value in that sense. Now as for edge, I don't see you finding edge in the free agent market. I just don't I just don't believe it's easy to do. I think that's where they're gonna really attack. I think eventually, honestly, I do believe they'll take an edge guy with that first pick. If I come to my head right now, I think it's gonna be an edge guy with that first pick. As far as cornerback and defensive line goes, defensive line, I think they'll replenish both ways for agency in the draft. And then cornerback is going to be an interesting one because you really do have to use capital to get cornerbacks. I know Gettleman's done it in the past with the Panthers, and he's even openly admitted that, you know, he regrets, you know, going for cornerbacks the year he rescinded the franchise tag for Josh Norman because basically said we drafted for need, and and that's when you start to make your mistakes. So I kind of think that one's more tricky and up in the air. Where do you see them going to improve those five areas, Nick? I think one thing that I I thought about um, before the podcast was in terms of the OLB edge spot. Um, you know, uh, Betcher is very specific for the needs of the players, the traits of the players that he's looking for for each position. One thing that Gettleman mentioned uh, when they hired him a few uh, last year. Um, and the more you study Betcher's defense, and it's probably apparent to those that are very, very smart and good coaches, it's, it mirrors very closely Georgia, Clemson, and Alabama in terms of, of style, um, in terms of what the plays they call and the complexity of it. Uh, overall, I think that what they're balancing on the edge position is if they actually want this defense desperately needs someone with production to help out the secondary. So if you look at taking a guy as an edge rusher in the first, you know, let's just look at the top 10 picks of the draft and look at the guys who are going to be probably going there that are really, really good to one of the, the, one of the real guys with real overlap is, um, is Josh Allen down in Kentucky. Oh my God, Nick. Don't but he, but, I love Josh Allen. Go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. But, here, but here's the problem, though. Like, I love him, too, from a stylistic standpoint because he can cover guys in space. He's, when he, you know, he, he's played in the 3-4 in a varying 3-4 scheme um, down, in, down in, in Kentucky. But he's not – he's still pretty raw, and he was a guy that's changed a lot. He's gained, like, 60 pounds in the last 18 months. So you're, you have a guy – I'm not saying he's a project – but you have a guy who's going to continue to develop. He doesn't have a massive pass rushing plan. He doesn't have a ton of counter moves. He's not to say that I'm not, again, this is a tough compare because he's the best, but he's not a Bosa in the way that he'll give you production from day one. So I think that the giants, and I don't have the answer for this. I think the giants have to balance. Can, who can we get that can actually get us what we need in Olivier Vernon? And then who is the best guy that continue, that can continue the better kind of versatility on the on the edge on the edge level as well, or do we have enough of those guys because we think Carter can get there projection wise, you know, in twelve months or six months, whatever you know, when the season starts again? I think that's the balance. That's like the debate that they're having because this defense desperately needs pressure, and they're not getting it from their top eight guys. So, like, 
you know, does that mean I'm what I'm, guess, I'm trying to say is if you if you drafted anyone other than Bosa, I'm not sure if you're going to get that week one of 2019, and they really need that. Yeah, I think that's fair. And honestly, my like I like I mentioned, Nick, I'm a big big Josh Allen guy. I think you know what I would ask you about is this, Nick. I thought you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I remember hearing a lot of the same about Khalil Mack when he entered the draft as he, you know, about the pass rushing plan, about, you know, not winning as much with edge Ben. And he was just insanely productive in that final season at Buffalo. And, and it was similar to me to what I've seen from Allen. I mean, we're talking about insane production from him, tackles for losses, pressures overall, um, and even what he can do in coverage. So is that kind of, do you kind of see, you know, at least some, some similarity there to, to, you know, what maybe the drawbacks was for were for Mac versus what they are for Allen. Yeah. And I, and I would have to, I don't remember how his, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is like, if you take the dumbass like weeks one through six of next year, is that guy going to help you? Mm-hmm. Like, I, yeah, I don't know. And that's the wrong way to look at a prospect. And I just think that, you know, like, like let's say they, Josh, they, they, they draft Allen and it's week and it's week six and they're one and five. Like he could be a normal rookie who's going to be awesome, who could even be Khalil Mack, but he may not be giving you the production you need. You're kind of screwed, and you're in a position where, like, all of a sudden you're you know you're having fights, and you need you need to find a way to get a guy in here. I think they have to balance that out because it. Although many people want to say that like the Giants don't you know aren't going to fire guys and you know, they turn over their head coaches pretty slowly, I think all these guys have to realize that in year two, if you're not producing, it's going to be tough. And so I think that's where it's like this balance of. It, of, of having that other bona fide rusher, maybe if it even is a lower paid free agent that they think they can take a chance on. Um, I think you kind of have to do it maybe both ways. Yeah, it's interesting to think about because I think that that's really where they're going to focus mostly in free agency, um, unless they do go out and get a big guy like Daryl Williams. Um, and it's kind of on those lesser known, maybe a few you know second wave guys that just fit their scheme specifically. Um, and that's where they can pick off some value. But, you know, in the end, Nick, I'm not even sold that Josh Allen's going to last the number six overall, quite honestly. I think there's actually a pretty good chance he doesn't. So I'm not going to get too excited just yet. And the last question we've got for today before we sign off is going to be, what are, uh, you know, what are some potential free agent targets for the Giants? And I think I can speak for myself and, and, and you, Nick, just based on our conversation before this, that, you know, we don't have that just yet. We haven't dove into free agency just yet. But he did also ask, are you guys – at quarterback or wait until the 2020 draft. Sorry, say that again. You cut up for half a second. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you guys worried? He asks if Dave Gettleman will reach at quarterback or wait until the 2020 draft. No, you know what? I, I gotta say, for a guy like Gettleman, I don't think he's gonna. If he if, if they go through their process and they get the guy and they like what they see and whoever it is, it could be any of the guys you mentioned. It could be someone out of left field, and if they get him, I don't. I'm okay. I don't think they're going to re- I think they're going to do it the right way and be right on it. I, I do believe that because I think he's going to get, I think he's a little bit more of a consensus guy than maybe people realize um, just my gut feeling. So I don't think it's going to be something where it's like, a, it's going to be a whiff. If they wait, I think they were waiting because they kind of know what they think in 2022 as well. Um, even though again, a lot can change from them, um, you know, or until then, but basically I don't, I don't think it's going to be that type of thing where it's like a, I would, if he reaches, I think he's going to be right, is the way I'll say it. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I completely agree. I don't think he's going to – I mean, he made it clear yesterday in his press conference. And like I said earlier on this podcast, I don't think he's the type of guy who lies that much to the media. He said you can't force a quarterback pick and you can't force any position. 
So I really don't think he will do that. I think if they draft the quarterback high, they're really going to be sold on this guy to be their solution. And they're not going to give up on him anytime soon, which is part of the risk I see, you know, in taking one of these players, if it's not Haskins, let's say, um, as when, you know, as it pertains to the 2020 class coming, coming, coming next. And you know what? I'll be honest and I'll say it right now, Nick, I haven't seen enough yet. But I saw a lot of games from him last season. I was able to get my hands on them. And I've seen about three games from this season. I'm not going to – I have a weird and bad feeling. I mean, the old school Giants, I should say, would fall in love with Drew Locke. I got to be honest with you. And I, and I got a bad feeling they might fall in love with him. But I'm hoping that's not the case now that Chirmer's in. I think that some changes have been made to how they're evaluating quarterbacks. And that's pretty obvious by their decision to draft Kyle Aletta one year after drafting a, a completely different prospect like Davis Webb. Um, just from an overall talent and skill set standpoint. But, you know, we'll touch on more of that later. But overall, I'll agree with you, Nick. I don't think they're going to force any pick, really. Um, but yeah, yeah. We're going to sign off for today's show. A lot more to come this offseason. Stick with us. We're going to do a lot of senior bowl talk coming up. Nick's going to be there live. I haven't got my company to pay for that, so I don't know if I'm going to get there live myself. But, you know, we'll find out soon. Um, on that note, guys, have a great weekend, and go Giants. Let's try.